0: Good evening. I ask you to take your Bibles and please turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking, as our brother has told us, just at those first three verses um, in chapter 2. Today we finally get to the, the primary purpose of Paul's occasion for writing the second letter is really going to be unfolded to us here in our passage, he's had some preliminary remarks and thanksgivings for the Lord preserving them, um, their, their um, abounding love and their, their um, uh, faith that was greatly enlarged. And now he gets to really the point of why he's writing. You'll remember in his first letter, he talked about the, the parousia, the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, four times throughout that letter that was very much on Paul's mind. And so now he's writing again, remember I said probably three to nine months after the first letter, to clear up some confusion that had arisen. They had misunderstood, they had misapplied um, some of the passages uh, that that he had written, and one of which I think what um, Deepu, our brother, had just read for us, that passage in Thessalonians 4, the latter uh, verses there. So, as I said, this message was misinterpreted, misapplied, and it it led to an unhealthy excitement, a misunderstanding about when the Lord was to come. Maybe the day of the Lord had already happened. Are we in the midst of the day of the Lord? There was confusion abounding in this church. And, of course, remember that that they are relatively young believers, probably less than a year in the Lord, maybe a year and a half in the Lord, and so they're, they're very young believers now, just by way of review, the context of the letters I already began to allude was, was, was really to write to clear up this confusion. But there's also, Paul is giving them encouragement in the midst of their persecution. We talked at some length um, over the previous weeks about how the persecution was intense. But Paul is so thankful to God because in the midst of that Fierce persecution, their love was abounding towards one another, and their faith was greatly enlarged, to use the NAF uh, terminology. And then he goes on talking about the principle of God's righteous judgment, that is, that the retribution that will come. So those who are inflicting all of this pain on you, ultimately they will be, there will be pain inflicted on them in God's righteous judgment. And so... He develops that last time. We're not going to go over that. We spent a couple weeks in that. And then last week was just verses 11 and 12, where he really gets to this end. In light of all of this judgment and retribution to this end, we pray. And that was the substance of our last message. And we saw the resource um, that, that, that Paul and his companions go to, and that is what? The sovereign God. The request is that they would be counted worthy in the midst of all of their persecutions, that they would be counted worthy of their calling, that every desire would be fulfilled, and that their work of faith would be prospered with the power of God. And then finally in verse 12 was the reason, and that was the glory of Christ, that Christ would be glorified, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God. Paul's point was this: is that, to summarize it, in in light of the hope of the return of Christ and Him coming to set all things right, all things right, that 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 it not only affects our thinking theologically of having all these things figured out, but it affects how we live, and that's why he prayed that they would be considered worthy um, of their calling. So the ultimate end of his prayer is that the Lord Jesus would be glorified. So tonight with God's help, we're going to look at the first three verses of chapter 2. Next week, we're going to look at verses 4 to 12, the the rest of the body of of this uh, section. And this section, verses 1 to 12, is a very difficult section um, to look at, and you'll see that as we go through it. But we must remember, brothers and sisters, at the outset, that what is Paul's purpose in writing? It's not to set forth some blueprint of the end times. It's not to set forth the Christians to undo speculation as to what, how the end time events are going to unfold. His purpose is pastoral. It's to give them encouragement in the midst of their deep afflictions and to clear up their misunderstandings so that they might live in a way that's pleasing to God the persecution that they were enduring, the confusion that they had regarding the day of the Lord, and then ultimately that led to the third reason of Paul's writing, and we're going to see that in chapter 3, the disorder that resulted because of all the speculations of if the day of the Lord's here, Christ is coming any day, why work? And we're going to unfold that when we get there. So again, this is the purpose of Paul's writing, and he's really building up to it in the latter part of chapter 1, but this is the climax, this is the reason of why um, he is writing. And as I said, this is one of the hardest passages, and some theologians say this is the most difficult text that the Apostle Paul has ever written. And we have to remember that even Peter said in Second Peter, what did he say about Paul's writing? And Things that are very hard to understand, right? And this is, I think, one of those texts. And there's really two extremes that you can go to as you approach a text like this. One is just to skip it and avoid it. And so those who do not practice expository preaching through books of the Bible would probably gladly leap right over chapter 2 and go to chapter 3. Okay, or jump to 2.13 where there's great encouragement here in God's sovereign election. The other extreme is to spend too much time on a text like this. To, to speculate and to unfold and to set dates and to try to, you know, the, the, the prophecy conferences and those kinds of things. It's amazing that there's certain texts, a handful of texts, that just get propounded all the time. And so I hope we strike the balance that we're going to go through it because we preach through books of the Bible here at Grace Bible Church. So we're going, to, we're going to go through it, but we're not going to read too much into the text like they do at the prophecy conferences and so forth. Perhaps most striking about this passage and I'll bring this out more next week is that it appears that this young church who had some things wrong with it they were doing many things well but there was some things that that, that they knew things that we don't. Look at verse 5 and 6 and then we'll read the passage in just a minute but I want you to see this. Do you not remember that while I was still with you I was telling you these things and you know what restrains him now. Talking about Antichrist we're going to get to that, so that in his time he will be revealed. We don't know what restrains. We do not know all that they knew. Okay? Apparently, Paul had given instruction to them that is beyond even what we know now. Now, of course, I've got my own ideas, and we're going to talk about that. But it's striking that they knew things that we didn't. He could just say, and you know. You know that I was teaching you about him. But we need to make no mistake about it, that God's Word is 100% infallible, it is altogether true, it is the complete revelation of God, we don't have to speculate wondering, "Oh, God, God hasn't told us something, it is everything that we need to know is contained in this book, and the secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29. I think for some of us it's that we don't know our Old Testament enough, and we're going to get to that as far as the allusions to the prophecy of Daniel, which is very apparent in this passage. And they, they can just go right over our head because we don't know Daniel that well. We don't study the Old Testament as much as we ought, and so maybe that's a challenge to all of us. So tonight, three simple points. The first point is the day of the Lord has not yet come. That's verses 1 and 2. The second two points have to do with what Paul says must happen first, and that's the great falling away from the truth, the great apostasy, and then the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So let's read the text, verses 1 to 3. Now we request you brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless The apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And I'll read verse 4, but we're going to look at this next week. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or, or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then that's where Paul says, Do you not remember while I was with you, I was telling you these things. So the title of the message is, Do Not Be Deceived Concerning the Timing of the Day of the Lord. Very simple. First of all, we see this false claim. Paul begins chapter 2, or begins this passage, the chapter breaks, came later. Now we request you, brethren. Again, every time he uses brethren, it's a term of endearment. Catch my. This is important, what I'm getting ready to say. It's, it's almost as though the truly, truly, or amen, amen that, that Christ uses. He says, now we request you, brethren. This is, this is Paul's way of transitioning to what he had already been talking about. He's already been talking about the day of the Lord, right? At the end of chapter 1, right? Has he already been talking about that? I mean, what event is this? When the Lord Jesus is revealed the revelation of our Lord from heaven with his mighty angels, right? And the judgment and the retribution that will be set forth. He's been talking about the day of the Lord already. But now, he says, now we request you, brethren, he's about to address a serious problem related with it. A serious problem related to it. And that is because some thought that the day of the Lord had already come. And so he begins it in that way. Now again, when he says, the, we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word coming is parousia. That's that word that means that, that, that when, when He is coming on the scene, it's the presence of one coming, the, the arrival, the advent. It often refers to, to the arrival or presence of royalty. And so that's that word that we saw at the end of chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 in First Thessalonians. And we'll see it three times in this chapter alone. But here it is referring to that great and final day when Jesus Christ returns To earth. And then he he addresses, he kind of adds the sublimity to this, and, and he doesn't want them to mistake, and so he doesn't just say the coming of our Lord, as he does in some places, but he says the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the full, complete title of our Lord, so that there's no mistaking about it. And then he says, notice, and our gathering together to him. Now, it's very important, even in the English translations, it says, "...the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him." This is one and the same event, with one article talking about two two events here. And this word, gathering, is is an interesting word. It's the gathering together into one place. And it only occurs one other place in the the New Testament, and that's a passage that you know well, and it's Hebrews 10.25 not forsaking the gathering together of the saints, right? It's a passage that we love and we hold dear. It's the idea of a gathering together of God's people. So the, the, the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, will be at the same time as the gathering of God's people, as we read in First Thessalonians 4, it's one and the same event. So both Christ's coming and the saint's resurrection are in view here, um, it's evident from the wording here. And so this, this coming in our gathering, on the one hand and on the other hand, together is one event. Notice that there's no room here for a secret seven-year rapture. It is not here. It's not in First Thessalonians. It's simply not here. This is one and the same event. Uh, Jack, let's turn to First Thessalonians 4. Because I think what Paul is doing is he's adding, he's he's further developing what he had said already in the first letter here. Paul would continue to unpack the truths contained here. Remember that just by way of review, some teach that the end of Thessalonians 4 is talking about a secret rapture, right? A secret rapture where Christ comes almost to earth, he takes all the Christians out of the way, and then there's seven years of tribulation, and then seven years later, Christ comes, and then that's when he comes, and that's the day of the Lord. I think that's lacking scriptural support. And particularly, as you would consider, the, chapter, the end of chapter 4 flows right into chapter 5, without chapter breaks in the original he goes right in and to talk about the times and the epic, brethren. You have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's 5, 1, and 2. You see, there's no secret, suddenly now we fast forward seven years because there's a chapter break between chapter 4 and 5. It's just not here. And so too with our passage before us. Um, Beal calls this an overrealized distortion. Um, Or some refer to it as an over-realized eschatology. They've they've, they've gleaned these things, they've they've received these things, and now they've they've over-applied them to thinking that the day of the Lord had already come. Back to 2 Thessalonians 2, if you look in verse 8, jumping ahead a little bit here, but I want you to see this. Because the word parousia also occurs here. And he says in verse eight, "Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with His breath, with the breath of His mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming, His presence, Him coming on the scene." So notice, and next week we're going to develop this, but as the lawless one is revealed, that is, at the moment He's revealed, it's a very, very short time possibly instantly, I mean just back to back, then the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth at his coming. There's no seven years here. Now you can draw a line like I did after the word revealed, but there's not seven years there. Okay? The man of lawlessness is revealed, and then the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the very appearance of him coming on the scene. Now, I know this is technical, I know I'm going fast, I'm probably jumping around, but try to follow along, and hopefully next week and this week we'll all sit together like a sandwich and uh, make some sense. Well, let's look at chapter 2, or verse 2. Paul says, "...that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be distorted, either by a spirit, or a message, or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come." So we need to be aware of being quickly shaken by prophecy, as this young church did. They were quickly shaken in their composure. There was uh, you know, the idea that the day of the Lord had already come, had led to some um, imbalance in their lives, neglecting responsibilities, a mental excitement, a speculation, all of these things, uh, becoming idle, quitting their jobs. Now the word for shaking here is it's, it's a word that means a motion produced by winds, storms, and waves to agitate or to shake. It's the word that's, um, that would be similar to like an earthquake. In Acts 4.31, when the, the, when the early church is there praying, and it says and when they had prayed, the place was shaken. That's the word here. And Paul is here using this word, talking about their composure, literally their mind, being shaken. You're being shaken up because you don't understand these things and you don't understand when the Lord is coming. So he says, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. And he speaks of the day of the Lord uh, here. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but back in verse 10 of chapter 1, he doesn't say day of the Lord, but notice what he says. When he comes to be glorified... In his saints on that day, that great day, not the day that's the secret, you know, seven year or whatever, the secret wrap. It's that day, the great day of the Lord. So he had already referred to it in 110. He's mentioning it by name, the day of the Lord, and 2 2 here before us. Now, what was causing them to be quickly shaken uh, from their composure? It appears that they're. There's three possibilities. He says either by a spirit or a message or a a letter as if from us. And so the idea of a spirit may be some prophecy, some prophetic utterance that was given uh, from someone in their midst. The idea of a message that's log off in the original, it's it's a spoken word, maybe a false report of some sort of going forth or being rumored around at Thessalonica and, and in that church or a letter, and this is, is, Pol- is it's uh where we get epistle from, as though written by us. And I think this is probably probably a more likely, uh, the more likely cause because forgery was very common in the first century. If you wanted to get a message across, you would forge and sign somebody's name that was well known to get it read. Let me illustrate that. If I was to write some book on, on anything or prophecy or whatever and put my name on it, nobody would read it, right? more than likely, maybe somebody would, but if I was to somehow be able to get it published with Dan Brown, or, or some other, you know, Tim LaHaye, or something like that, millions of copies would be sold, and you would be reading what I had wrote, right? And so there was these letters that went, went around, and there would, sometimes would be forged, obviously, um, Paul the Apostle, and so that could be what was creating some of this, them uh, um, being shaken here, but... Uh, you know, Paul doesn't know. He's saying either by a spirit, a message, a letter. It was In like, all likelihood, it was probably all three, and then their own just lack of understanding. So he's wanting to give them um, a, an understanding here. So don't be quickly shaken. The day of the Lord has not come, and I don't care if you hear it, if somebody prophesies that it has, if you hear some report from someone you respect, or even if you get a letter, and even though it looks like it's from me, The day of the Lord has not come. So he wants to get that across. And it's literally present. When it says has come, it's literally the day of the Lord is not present now. And you can imagine in the midst of all of their affliction and and suffering that they went through, we developed this some weeks back, that maybe they were thinking this has got to be the end because how could God allow this to happen to us as a young church? So they thought that it was present. Now, there was a similar issue in Corinth. Look back in Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. Of course, this is in regards to the resurrection. He says in 15 12. Now this is where some are denying the final physical resurrection here. Paul writes, Now if Christ is preached and he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. The misconceptions about the reality of the resurrection. But likewise, what about some that say that the resurrection had already taken place? Right? Isn't that just as, uh, just as real? There's many cults in our day that would claim that, that the resurrection has already taken place, that Christ has even already come back. There's some that, that actually it's a, a growing trend just in the last five to ten years of preterism, of believing the idea that that, that Christ has already come back spiritually and the resurrection has already happened and we're in the new new heavens and the new earth. I hope you don't believe such things. We had to discipline uh, two people out of our church about five or six years ago that, that held to this belief. It's called full preterism. The idea that all of Matthew 24, all of the book of Revelation was completely fulfilled in AD 70 or before. But also, what about cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses that would claim on October 1st, 1914, that Jesus Christ came back visibly and everybody saw it. And then they said, okay, well maybe that's not right. And they said, we're not going to set any more dates. But then they set more dates. And then there's another one and there's another one. These kinds of things are happening around us. And may I say about the Jehovah's Witnesses is... is the book of Deuteronomy says, how can you tell what a false prophet is? It's one who predicts something and it does not come to pass. And it says, do not believe such a thing. And why people flock to Jehovah's Witnesses, I have no idea. Even Christians converting to them. The idea that the resurrection had already taken place was actually a belief that was held by some even in Paul's day. In Second and uh, Timothy chapter 2, he talks about Himaeus and Philatists, right, who have gone astray, saying that the resurrection had already happened. That's that's astounding to me, that even in the Apostle Paul's day, that there were some that were holding to this, and and going astray from the truth. And many examples could be be cited, and we're going to look at some more in just a moment. So Piper says, Paul's aim here is very practical in this passage. He wants to help Christians experience peace, Calm, stability, and clarity in their mind. He wants them to settle down, mellow out, to use the modern vernacular, about all this excitement and speculation. Just settle down, relax. The day of the Lord has not come yet. So we've seen that the day of the Lord has not come now. Secondly, there will be a great falling away from the truth that must happen first. Now, verse 3, he says. Let no one in any way deceive you, which I think is a summary, that phrase, a summary of verses 1 and 2. Let no one deceive you. For, and notice it's in italics, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And we'll stop there. Notice what Paul is saying here is that this day of the Lord... That, that, that you're being stirred up and shaken by spirits and messages and letters and all that, let no one deceive you, it will not come unless the great apostasy comes first. And this word is a means of falling away, a defection, um, it's translated rebellion, and the NIV and the ESV I think also translates it rebellion, the great and final rebellion. So it appears that even, and I've already alluded to this, but it appears that they had already received some instruction regarding this according to verse 5 and verse 6. Now even Jesus Christ warned about such a thing happening when he was still on earth in Matthew 24. I'll just read it. Verse 10, you can write down the reference, 10 to 12. Jesus says, "...at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another." Many false prophets will arise and mislead many because lawlessness is increased and most people's love grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus Christ, even in that passage there, talks about such a time. Notice the falling away in verse 10, the lawlessness in verse 12. Both of those ideas are communicated here in verse 3. Uh, by the Apostle Paul. I want to make something very clear here. The idea of falling away, the idea of a defecting or a a departing from the faith, Paul in no way means to communicate, and neither do I, that the true child of God can fall from grace, that the true child of God can somehow lose his salvation. That is not the teaching of the Word of God. I want to make that very clear. God's genuine children will not be deceived. Though they may backslide for a season, they will be brought back by the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit. They will not ultimately fall away. The Good Shepherd knows his sheep, and they hear his voice, and they follow him. So, he says, Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. I think this is a clear allusion, well, this whole passage really, to Daniel's prophecy and the prediction of this end-time opponent that will come against God's covenant community and will be raised up and and, and, and will will, um, lead many of God's people away. A large-scale compromise this apostasy that, that it doesn't occur outside of the church, it doesn't occur outside of God's covenant community, but it occurs what appears to be inside of the covenant community of God. And there's three, three observations I would give you. The first is is the immediate contact context. It appears to happen within the church, doesn't it? Paul is talking here, and he's talking about this apostasy. He doesn't say, I mean, they're living in a pagan Thessalonica, and there's pagan worship all around them. He, he most certainly doesn't mean that there's a falling away and they, they worship worse idols, right? He's talking about and within the context of the church, or the professing church, there will be a great falling away. Also, the idea of falling, uh, falling away assumes a prior turning to God. Right? And then finally, it's consistent with the word um, apostasy and its original word of of falling away and and how it's used in the Bible, referring to those that profess faith in Christ. Now, deceptive ideas are being propagated all the time, all around us. Okay, there's those who take the name Christian, those who take the name of, of loving God or professing to love God where there's deceptive ideas being communicated. I'm just going to give you one. Consider Mormonism, known for its wholesome family values, known for all the good things that they do, the the caring for some of the poor, the greater zeal to witness than than some Christians, or most Christians, sadly. And all of this points to where, wow, they must just really, truly love God. But as as, as attractive as that is, they are devoid of the true gospel of salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone in Christ. They're devoid of the true gospel. So all of the ideas, all the outwards can appear very deceptive and appear very right, but it's, it's, it's missing the core of the gospel. Consider even in the Apostle Paul's time, consider Thessalonica, just... just Go back to A.D. 51, around this time, and there you are walking through the streets, paganism all around you. But if you met somebody else that professed faith in Christ, you could be assured of this thing, that whatever revelation of Holy Scripture was available at the time, they believed it, they feared God, they believed God to be sovereign and control of all things. There was no disputing these types of things. They believe the deity of Christ, salvation, um, um, in Christ alone. You, you wouldn't just meet Christians uh, in eighty fifty one walking through the streets like we do today. And what I mean by those who take the name Christian. Because nowadays, as we discovered, as we went witnessing before our picnic, we went to the family day here in Claremont, just talking to people, talking to people after they went to the Muslim booth, and, and just inquiring of people, People do not, they they take the name Christ, but they do not believe this is God's word. They do not believe that it's infallible. They do not believe that Christ is fully God, fully man. They do not believe a myriad of things that make up what a true child of God is. And so in our day, how much more we need to clarify, because we see this Christian unbelief under the name of being a Christian. But it's really an unbelief in the core values and truths that we hold dear Look at 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 4. Paul told us to expect such things, chapter, verse 1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Second Timothy chapter 3. Realize this. In the last days difficult times will come. Verse 5, "...holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these." I think you know the rest of the passage. I'm skipping it. Men, lovers of self, and all the, all the rest there. "...holding to a form of godliness, but denying the very power." that Paul said that would happen, and we see it happening before our very eyes. Now, as far as this great falling away, I mean, we've seen, a, we've seen falling away in the, in the Bible that's recorded for us, haven't we? What's the primary example that might pop into your mind? Probably several, but Judas, right? I mean, it should pop into your mind because at the end of verse 3, it says the son of destruction or the son of perdition, literally. That's a term that's referred to of Judas, Okay. So Judas pops into our mind. That's one who has fallen away. What about you? We can go back way before that, even in the garden. Cain fell away. Um, Example after example, Esau trading his birthright. What about examples in history that we see even right now before our eyes? Consider the Anglicans. Consider the church in Europe at large. Consider the church in England, the place where the Puritans three and four hundred years ago had such... The mighty revivals under their ministries. Go back an extra hundred years, the times of the Reformation and the flocking to the glorious truth of justification by faith alone and Christ alone. The dark ages becoming, dawning with a bright light and coming back to these, the, these wonderful truths contained in the Bible. Consider that time for hundreds of years, just the gospel being magnified and millions of souls being saved. Now there's there's some problems with that state churches and all of that, but all out of sight, doctrine was held dear, the gospel was magnified, and what is the church? What how is the church represented now in England? You've got a liberal Baptist Union which ordains women. That's the Reformed Baptist, if you will. I mean that's that's the you know the Baptist Union there has has gotten really bad. What about the Anglican Church? What about these bishops, Bishop spawn, and others who, who bring up these ideas of denying eternal punishment and denying the infallibility of Holy Scripture? That is a falling away from truth, brethren, and it's right before our eyes. What about the Episcopal Church here in the United States? First they want to um, allow women into leadership, right? And then it's... Well, we can uh, embrace homosexuality. We'll take those pages out of the Word of God. You know, those are cultural, culturally related pages. We don't have to apply those. And then now we're ordaining homosexuals into the ministry. That is a falling away from truth. And it's right before your eyes. Other examples. The extreme charismatic church, the mockery on TBN. The women preachers that are on there, the Benny Hens that are there, that can just at the moment just command whatever. I was debating a guy yesterday talking about this where he was, he was defending Benny Hens' ministry. It is an absolute mockery what goes on in the name of Christianity today, and it should bother you. It should make you weep because the gospel is being perverted and your God is being misrepresented. Consider big name churches like Willow Creek and Bill Heivels, and after September 11th, you know, having an Islamic leader come in to talk about the virtues of Islam in a New Testament church. Now, what is wrong with that? Am I the only one seeing this? Am I the only one bothered by this? Some of the Baptist churches embracing what is known as open theism. Open theism is that doctrine that that basically just says that God really doesn't know the future. He really doesn't know what's going to happen. You know, it's kind of a risk for God, but He's taken a great risk and given us a free will, and He really doesn't know what's going to happen. What's wrong with that? It goes against the clear teaching of Holy Scripture, that God is all-knowing, that God is all-powerful, that God holds all things together by the word of His power. It's an insult to God and yet these are things that are being propagated in our day in the name of Christianity not Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness this is in the name of Christianity so this falling away this great rebellion must happen first and I submit to you we are seeing it in great measure in our day whether it's what this is talking about I don't know but it is happening before us there is an incredible falling away from truth And it's interesting because even during Paul's life, he saw the second coming of Christ as imminent. He saw falling away. I already told you about the second Timothy passage. Those who said the resurrection had already come, they departed from the truth. Paul could say in First Thessalonians 4 that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him. Not those in future generations, but we, like within Paul's lifetime, the possibility of the Lord Jesus Christ coming. I believe we need to be ready for the return of Christ today because it could come at any time. Whatever needs to happen, don't ever get into a situation of, of evaluating uh, the, 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 the uh, geopolitical scene and, and the newspapers and all that. Well, I haven't seen this yet. I haven't seen that yet. I guess He's not going to come because it will come like a thief in the night. Matthew 24, Thessalonians 5.1 It will come when you least expect it. So we need to be ready. So first of all, he says that this great apostasy must happen first. The second thing he says is that the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, who is this lawless man? This final apostasy, this great falling away, prepares the way for the manifestation of this human person. And, and and he's going to come in all wickedness. He's going to come inspired by Satan. And this falling away, I think, sets up the fertile ground for Antichrist to be raised up within the context of some religious institution. We don't know exactly. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, in verse 18, we see... That John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing probably in between 80, 80 and 90, says this Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, and from this we know that it is the last hour. And isn't it interesting, right after that passage, is that verse 19, talking about when they go out from us, they were not really of us, which is really what? It's a falling away, right? That they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it may be shown that they all are not of us. Isn't that interesting that Antichrist, man of wellnesses, tied together with apostasy, right there within two verses. So, even John says that this is the last hour and Antichrist is coming, but he says what? Many Antichrists have arisen already by, by the writing of 1 John here. Are there many Antichrists? I think there is. I think there is. Certainly the spirit of Antichrist is pervasive. But what about the man in Latin America that says that he is Jesus Christ? Have you heard about this man? He's got a couple hundred thousand followers, maybe a few million viewers. Okay, and he's all over TV through Latin America, and he claims to be Jesus Christ. This stuff is happening even in our day. This is amazing. I I neglected to search to get the guy's real name. It's um, a Latin name. But you can search yourself and, uh, and find it. Just Google it. So many Antichrists are in our midst. Many more examples could be listed. Paul identifies this man as a man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, which indicates his destiny, just like Judas, right? His destiny was destruction or perdition. And then he will oppose and exalt himself against God. And we're gonna, we'll look at this next week, or every so called God. He wants exclusive worship from God. He wants to take the worship that's due to the true God, but also any worship that goes to any other false gods he wants to himself. Now what does the Bible say about Antichrist? First of all, it's very important that you understand that this is not Satan himself incarnate. Okay? Satan is not going to become incarnate and, 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 and that is not going to be Antichrist. This will be a human inspired by Satan, motivated by Satan, even given some power, according to verse 9, by Satan, notice verse 9, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. So his coming will be in accord with the activity of Satan, he'll be given power from Satan, but it is not Satan incarnate. But notice just a few observations. He's an antinomian, he hates Satan. God's law; hence, lawless one. Right? That's exactly what that means. He's an adversary. He's the one who opposes God and exalts himself in the very face of God. He's a deceiver. He leads many astray. John eight forty four. He's the father of lies, and he has some supernatural power but obviously under the sovereignty of God that is permitted and allowed, much like we saw in the opening chapters of Exodus, right? Do you remember? Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. They perform some act, and what does the magicians do? They copy it. How in the world do they do that? Is that, is that a magician show or something? I think there was probably some, under the sovereignty of God, obviously, God allowed that to where there was some supernatural power um, coming from Satan. Jesus would say Matthew twenty four twenty four, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show you great signs and great wonders. So as to mislead, even if possible, the elect. Even the elect. Even if possible These deeds, these wonders would be so great that it would lead so many astray. But it will not lead the elect astray. And we can thank him for that. Antichrist, he's a counterfeit. He's a counterfeit of the true Christ. Anti instead of. He's a mimic. And if you're a child of God, you should be thankful. You will not be deceived. If you're one of his children, you're one of his elect children, one of the ones chosen from before the foundation of the world, and you will not be deceived. Well, who in the world could Antichrist be? Should we pick up the San Diego Union tomorrow morning and start scouring its pages to see where's he at? We see the apostasy. Where's this man of lawlessness? Let me tell you just a, a little bit about what those in, throughout church history have thought that this refers to. First of all, the early church, the, the church fathers, actually thought it referred to the Roman Empire, right? They actually thought it referred to the Roman Empire. And they, they, they thought that somehow that, that that was related to this, or one from within the Roman Empire. The reformers saw the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church and said, it has got to be the Pope. Our own confession, 1689 in chapter 26, states that the Pope is the Antichrist. Now, we don't believe that 100%. It, he's certainly a Antichrist. Whether he is the Antichrist, I think, is uh, um, maybe over it. But you can consider and understand the Reformers from the reformer standpoint and the Westminster divines in the early 1600s. You know, a thousand years of dark ages and the oppressive nature of the Roman Catholic Church, the perversion of the papacy and all of that, I can see where they would point to that. He's certainly a Antichrist. Let's look at Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And I'm going to hit these verses really quick, but I just commend them to you to look at. Um, Later, and we will be looking in more detail at these next week. Daniel eight and verse twenty three, which verse twenty one, it talks about the shaggy goat, twenty two, the broken horn, twenty three, in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled with intrigue. Notice the the word insolent means he will arise with a fierce face with a fierce face, and he will intimidate people into submission. And notice it says, skilled with intrigue, which communicates, I think, the shrewdness and the deceitful nature of this ruler. So this is the one that will arise. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 36. Again, the whole section is 31 to 45 further study for you this week but 36 says then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done and then finally chapter 7 and verse 25 Says he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One and he will intend to make alterations in a time and in the law and they will be given into his hand for a time, a times, and a half a time. Now there's some that think the the Daniel 11 passage was actually before Christ fulfilled and I think it was B.C. 164 uh, Antichrist, uh, Epiphanes and where he incited this great apostasy among the nation of Israel so that pagan worship was going on even within the temple of God. Um, but that's neither here nor there. But suffice it to say, Antichrist has been coming, coming. There, there's, there's several different Antichrists, many Antichrists that have come. Who is this great lawless one, the final Antichrist? I do not know. I'm sorry to let you down. <laughs> we'll try to unpack it a little more uh, next week as we would continue this theme and really verses I broke up the passage because I think verses 4 to 12 really describe the role of Antichrist what he will do and then the great deception and the, the, the great falling away and the ultimate judgment that comes at the end and so we will look at that next time so for now just drawing some very brief concluding applications and I've already alluded to this the return of Jesus Christ can happen at any time. And we need to be ready. His return is imminent. Don't think for a moment that, well, this A, B, B, and C hasn't happened yet. I'm not going to worry about it. I'll live like the heathen until A and B happen. And boy, then I'll get right. Jesus Christ can come back at any time. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling so that God will count you worthy in that day. And notice it's unbelievers that will be found in that day, that that will be caught unprepared. You will not be deceived. False prophets will arise, performing wonders, performing signs, but as the elect of God, you will not be deceived. Back in chapter 5 of his first letter, he says, You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you like a thief. If you brethren, if you are... In the Lord Jesus Christ, this day will not overtake you. But the bottom line is we need to be ready. We see apostasy all around us, all in the name of Christianity, and that should cause us to beware. I hope you look forward with great anticipation to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ Not when he comes for some secret rapture and then we're off for seven years and then the final... But when he comes, when the day of the Lord happens, I hope you're looking forward to that day with great anticipation, that great gathering with the Lord when he will send forth retribution upon his enemies, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he will give us as his children rest. Rest and ultimate deliverance or relief as he puts it there in in chapter 1. That's the day we should be looking for. And if you're here tonight and you do not know Jesus Christ, you have reason to fear. It says that when He comes from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty. And it's not a fine It's not a hundred dollar ticket. It's not five years in prison. It's a penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord forever. That is a frightening thing. So if you do not know Jesus Christ, how I pray that today would be the day of salvation, come to Him. If you do not know Him, talk to myself, talk to Mike Kelly, talk to us afterwards if you have concern or you'd like to talk further. Our Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. He came here. He donned human flesh. He lived the perfect life. He died the horrible death on our behalf. And why anyone would reject the offer of, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, is beyond me. But the offer stands. The door of mercy is wide open for today, but someday that door will be shut. When He comes, it is too late. Don't think, I'll believe then. It's too late. Your eternal destiny is sealed. So if you do not know Christ, come to Him today. Let us pray. Our Father God, we bow before You, thanking You for the clarity of Your Word. We thank You even for this passage that has been set before us uh, tonight. Lord, we thank You for its solemnity. I pray that You would cause each and every one of us uh, to be ready for this great and awesome day and Lord for those of us who are your children how we long to be with you how we long to commune with you face to face how we long to enter that rest but until then O God keep us faithful with the work that you've called us to do we pray this in Jesus name Amen